Hi, this is Roger Green, host of the Surfing the Nash Tsunami podcast. This week, we're offering four conversations around the general topic of COVID-19 and fatty liver disease. In this conversation, Donna Cryer discusses how immunocompromised and liver patients who were considered low priority for vaccination on the initial round used hard work, data generation, and tireless advocacy to rise toward the top of the list for booster vaccines. Stephen Harrison follows this by discussing Raj Reddy's recent article on COVID-19 and viral hepatitis, which makes similar points, although about a different condition. This episode covered 10 separate topics in 50 minutes, so the conversation moves quickly and energetically. Don't miss a word, but just sit back, listen, enjoy. Enjoy, learn, and when you're done, join the discussion on our LinkedIn and Facebook discussion groups. Roger Green. It's been a big week for news on COVID. If you remember, this is a podcast that started to talk about the impact that COVID-19, the original pandemic, was having on fatty liver disease. And here we are, 90 episodes and not quite a year and a half later. And this is a week that COVID-19 explodes in the news again for several different reasons. Number one, today is the day that the Pfizer vaccine received full approval in the U.S. That follows by a couple of days, the day that President Biden announced that the government would be supporting vaccinations for immunocompromised compromised people. It also follows by not very long a series of data coming out of many places, Israel being the best source. But we've also seen data from China, Portugal, UK, a whole bunch of places, specifically addressing the degree to which the vaccines become less effective over time, particularly in the presence of the Delta variant. At the same time, all that's going on, due to what some in the U.S. are calling the pandemic of the unvaccinated, our daily new infection rates have skyrocketed. And we're seeing again in parts of the country what we saw last year, where you can't find an ICU or hospital bed. So all this going on at once, and all these things have, from different perspectives, have important implications for the fatty liver community. So what I think I'd like us to do is take a a think a little bit about what all this means. We know, as I say, that the seven-day rolling average in the U.S. had 142,000 cases yesterday, which had been only 20,000 cases maybe a month ago or six weeks ago. Huge increase. And we, if you live in the States, are reading the stories about not being able to find it. There is not a single, well, for the last 10 days, reportedly, there's not been a single pediatric ICU bed in the Dallas area, or I believe in the Houston area. Zach, yes, Peter, San Antonio, Stephen. You know, and, and one out of every 1,200 people in Florida right now has an active case of COVID, and you can't find hospital beds there either. So we've got all that going on, We've got and we've got the studies reporting degradation of effective vaccine in the face of Delta variant over time. So what I wanted to do is I wanted each of us, from one perspective, to take a look at how the COVID-19 and Delta is touching our lives right now, and what we foresee in the months ahead. First, I think I'd like to turn to Donna and talk about what it means from a patient perspective. Donna Cryer. We've been involved for, it seems forever now, but I guess technically just 18 months in staking out a very proactive position in terms of making sure or at least fighting for uh, prioritization of first just clear direct information to people with autoimmune diseases and particularly liver transplant, liver cancer patients. But as we realized as COVID hit, how liver patients as a whole were in a high-risk category and immunologically and, and, and otherwise. These past few weeks, we really feel vindicated. The first rounds of vaccine, we were 7th, 8th, ninth, 10th. You know, we were so low on the list, I, I couldn't even count how far down we were in terms of accessing the first round of vaccines in, in the U.S. in particular and how that made liver patients feel, transplant recipients feel, cancer patients feel 
real that we were we felt completely devalued. Like it did not matter whether we lived or died. It was important that that never happened again. That looking at the data coming out of, of China, of Italy, of Israel, out of France, out of um, out of the UK, and thank the UK so much for the research that was done. We thank French for the policy um, advancements. We thank Israel uh, for being so so high performing, so that we would have solid, solid arguments in addition to the studies that were being done in the U.S. in terms of vaccine effectiveness, since, of course, transplant recipients, for example, weren't in the initial trials. And so to be able to get in a short, you know, it was a very exciting sort of late night Thursday before last when FDA did, followed very shortly by uh, the CDC Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices decisions, and then the CDC approval of vaccines for several defined categories of immunocompromised people. And I recognize that there was sort of a collective howl from several NASH patients about, well, we weren't included. It's not us. Uh, transplants just obvious. And I said, well, it may be obvious. And it doesn't mean we didn't have to fight for it. And we're still fighting for you. But one of the things that was part of our strategy was that it seemed just indefensible that transplant recipients, for example, or, or kidney patients on dialysis, people who are already identifiable and connected to the healthcare system and a provider, you know, in a very concrete way of being able to get a vaccination that, you know, we're just not, those avenues were not used, were just ignored in the in the first rounds. And so to be able to have a relatively small number of people whose risk was supported by the evidence that had been created in this time frame and who we could readily define a very clear way to provide them access to the vaccine in a way and in a time period that did not undermine the narrative, uh, the arguments and the efforts towards global vaccine equity because we were in many cases in the same boat. We were folks who didn't get, you know, had no response. And so we were as if we hadn't taken anything at all for the most part. And so it wasn't the case of weighing into the politics of a booster for immunocompetent people or, or a whole other things. It was just a, a really narrow population of, of people who were very vulnerable to COVID-19 in all of its current forms. And we're also, from a public health perspective, in our under-vaccinated states, just little variant incubators. So from a public health standpoint, there was a very clear evidence-based argument to make about about prioritizing access for transplant recipients, cancer patients, our GI friends on, on Remicade and other biologics, high-dose steroids, and very easily scientifically defined categories. But it took a lot of conversations. We've talked to multiple medical societies and CDC. Uh, we talked to multiple uh, members of the FDA leadership about the urgency that was needed for liver patients. This really is a great example of the triumph of liver advocates speaking. So it wasn't just the kidney folks. It wasn't just kidney transplant. We're specifically looking for and using liver transplant data, liver cancer data, and that really hadn't been done before, we were told. And so we were really proud to to represent that and to make sure that that was put into place as quickly as possible. We'll have a new COVID update Q&A and glossary term and, and, and things like that so people can understand. And then the next round is making sure that, that we do realize the suppressant status of liver diseases for the most part of their own. And so there is access to. So the message is 
is to, you know, to liver patients, to NASH patients who may not have found themselves included in this prioritized category that between now and the September 20th date for larger and certainly with today's news of full approval, which gives their physicians a lot of more flexibility to provide them a vaccine in office. You know, we're not leaving you behind. We're, you know, we're here for every every liver patient. But to make sure that the most vulnerable amongst the most vulnerable were prioritized in a way that they hadn't been before is a real triumph. That does sound right. And congratulations. I remember when the first round of vaccines were available, I was struck by the idea that it was easier for me to get a vaccine than for you. And that seemed harshly unfair to me. Yes. Thank you. I was really glad that we could correct that. It's not as if, and, and we worked very, very hard as part of our advocacy to not create a jostling of people with different conditions or putting one age group against the other, but really working. And this is the first thing in our conversations with a lot of the medical societies. What evidence do you have? What evidence do you need? How we can help you create it? Do you need more liver patients in certain study? High, you know, help us define high quality studies and put sign attention to them so that you can, we can have the data that we need to make sound arguments. So we really wanted to lead with the science. And there are larger conversations, of course, in the, in the regulatory conversation about the value of patient voice and how much weight it should be given. And so it was very important for us to have our advocacy be based on evidence, but also an urgency in those who are creating the evidence to do so and to make it widely available to match the speed of patient needs. It's one of the reasons why and part of this great fall refreshing and resetting for the Global Liver Institute that we are excited to add a patient insights and data center to help advance the development and inclusion of patient-generated health data and patient-defined research questions into the conversation, into policy and, and, and program making. So when you say patient insights and data center, that sounds like marketing research to me. Maybe it's because it's my background or maybe that's because what it is. What exactly will that center do? It can be some ethnographic research that often is done as part of market research. My first description would be all the information that I as a patient have of all the things that I'm doing that impact my health that I do outside of the doctor's office, outside of an EHR that isn't currently captured, whether that's, you know, symptoms or pain or other things that I'm taking or doing or exercise and and what have you. We also think of it as there are lots of data that's being collected that, that has hasn't been considered health data before, whether that's geolocation data or a or hundred different types of data that, that Google and Apple and others with whom we've had recent conversations are collecting about people that can be, that are being used for health. There's a great COVID mobility tracker that Google has, has stood up that's helped governments determine their COVID policies. There have been flu trackers from Twitter and, and just a, a lot of ways that information can be used that hasn't been applied to liver questions before. There are a lot of data in a lot of different silos of, or repositories and, and, and registries, rather whether claims data, EHR, research resident, resident uh, registries, and to be able to query across them to answer questions that patients have is really exciting. We're doing that with the European Society of Transplantation, for example, on their registry, top 10 questions that liver transplant recipients have and seeing how many can be answered with the data that they already collect in their in their registry, but really being able to create a fuller picture of the patient experience and the things that patients care about. And I'll give you I'll give you an example of things that patients may care about. When I went in for or was considering my knee replacements, I wanted to know how do liver transplant recipients do with knee replacements? I'm 
sure there are ways to get that data. For NASH patients, we, with so many concurrent conditions going on, you need so much more knowledge about what they're eating, how they're moving, what services that they are are using and putting together, how they're feeling about it, how they're paying, how their caregivers feeling about it. Are they working? Are they not? There are PROs and things that are in trials. There's a collection of, of things, but to put it under a banner and to have it driven by questions that patients have, I think is an exciting opportunity. Uh, Louise, Stephen, you have questions for Don or, or thoughts on the whole subject? Stephen Harrison. I mean, I, I think it's apropos that just, just recently, this this month actually, Raj Reddy published a review article in Journal of Viral Hepatitis entitled COVID-19 in the Liver, Lessons Learned from the East and the West a Year Later. And he speaks exactly along the same lines that Donna is speaking to. In fact, his concluding statement was patients with chronic liver disease, particularly cirrhosis and liver transplant recipients, are vulnerable to severe COVID-19 over the past year several unique considerations have been highlighted across the spectrum of hepatobiliary diseases. Vaccination is strongly recommended for those with chronic liver disease and liver transplant recipients. And in fact, in his article, he goes on to say that a booster vaccination, a third dose for immunocompromised patients is suggested. And and how apropos that, in fact, the guidance came out just to that this month, and, and uh, those immunocompromised patients are now eligible for a third dose. It's speaks on a broad front to many of the the things that Donna's been speaking about and advocating for. It's the result of lots of different groups coming together and he's speaking with a unified voice. Many of you know Raj Reddy. He's been a a transplant hepatologist and an advocate for liver transplant patients for at least a couple decades. And what a great document to have written by such a thought leader in the field. I just am am so glad that that has come out and, and that those patients are able to be given that additional booster vaccine. So those are my initial thoughts. And now back to Roger. We hope you've enjoyed this recording. If you have any questions or comments about the content of this conversation or the entire episode, please send an email to questions at surfingnash.com. We will be back next Wednesday, September 8th, with a series of individual interviews with patient advocates and some key opinion leaders discussing what each considers the most important story from the summer. Given some of the recent news and major academic publications and government actions, this should be fascinating to hear. I hope you'll join us. Until then, stay safe, surf on, see you on the podcast. Bye-bye now. (laughs) 